Every day he felt something missing. Uh, he grew up uh, in a rich family, but it's not just the money that this young man had. He also inherited a rich religious heritage. Uh, from the young age, he had been taught the Torah. And of course, we are not entirely sure, but it's likely, like all Jewish children, he had memorized all the first five books of the Bible. And yet this young man, who had what others could only dream about, felt an empty hole in his life. You see, he had gotten to the top, and he had discovered, as many people do, that there is nothing there. He wanted true fulfillment. The ancients called it eternal life. But the big question was, where would he find this eternal life? Well, history tells us that the man came running to Jesus. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after a few exchanges with the Lord Jesus, Jesus looked at him uh, with, with love, we are told. Jesus looked at him with love and he said to him, go and sell everything you have. Give the money to those who are poor and you have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. The man was devastated. He, he couldn't believe it. Give away all my money? Just like that. And without saying another word to Jesus, the Bible records that the man walked away sad. The only man who came to Jesus and walked away sad. You see, within each one of us, there is this longing to live in a relationship with God. We know that nothing in this world can satisfy us apart from God. We know that because we have tried many relationships, religion, countless other things. And if you haven't tried it yet because you're young, you're still trying it. Let's have a conversation in 10 years' time. You discover none of that satisfies. We know, those of us who have lived for, for a while, that we need God. In fact, all of us know we need God. We search in those things because we are looking for God. And yet when this man came to face, face to face with God, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, when this man came to Jesus and asked God the Son, how can I have life with God and true fulfillment? I mean, this is, who else to ask by God? We long for God to answer us, don't we? And this man comes to God. He, he asks God this question. And when Jesus gave him the answer, the Bible records that he went away sad. Mark 10, verse 21 to 22 says this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And then verse 22 says, Decided by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, putting God first above everything else generates resistance within us. We do not want to fully surrender to God in everything. It challenges our pride. And so let us be honest, friends, as we sit here this evening, we understand how that man felt, don't we? Why? Because we are that man. We are that man. How many times have you heard a sermon about sin and judgment and gone right back to doing it? How many times have you heard God say, repent, turn to me. In one, I'm talking of Christians now. How many times have you, as a professing Christian, have heard that God says, flee from the wrath to come in that area of your life and you just said, no change. But as we see in the life of this man, refusing to surrender to God has consequences. You see, a, a life that does not repent cannot enjoy God. Period. If there's no repentance, we can't enjoy God. Because either we're going to have God as he commands us, or we won't have him at all. And so, all of us need to be constantly reminded of what true repentance is. Whether we have truly repented and come to faith in Jesus as a sort of initial step, 
Or we are believers, we, 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 we haven't done that, right? Whether we are believers or we are not, we need to be reminded of true repentance. And you probably tell me this evening and you say, oh, well, look at true repentance today. You looked at that, oh, this is for non-believers. Well, I was very aware that the evening <laughs> tends to have people who, who, who are convinced they are believers. This is for it. It's in the Bible because it applies to all of us. Whatever stage of our discipleship is. Non-believer or believers. And so all of us need to be asked ourselves that question, isn't it? What is the repentance that God wants? What does it mean for me to repent? This is a huge question that different parts of the Bible answer it differently. We, we would need to do a systematic study of the scripture to get a full sense of what the Bible is teaching us. So really what we're doing this evening is we're trying to answer what Luke or what John the Baptist teaches us about repentance as a man inspired by God. And to do that, we're going to look at that verse 7 to verse 14 there. That's where we are focusing. Verse 7 to 14. We started looking at this passage this morning, for those of you who are not here. And the context here is that God has sent John uh, to say to the, to, the, to the people that God is coming to serve them. So verse 4 to verse 6, John is this prophetic voice that leaps off the pages of the Old Testament, we might say. He's saying, make a road of repentance to God. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain shall be made low. He's, he's come. He's come. This is the voice of God. John, he's the voice crying in the wilderness. And his job is to prepare them. He's preaching repentance. And, 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 and as they repent, they must be baptized to show publicly that they are people of the king who's coming. That's verse 1 to 6. Well, in verse 7 to 14, John explains more why it is important for people to welcome the king who's coming by repenting of their sin. Okay? Why repentance matters. And, uh, and then he explains what true repentance looks like. So this morning, we looked at the why. I said that, isn't it? The why question. Why does it matter that we... Why do we need to repent? And to some degree, you need to have listened this morning to understand the gravity of what we're talking about. Because why we need to repent is that the wrath of God is resting on every soul. It's a frightening wrath. It's an imminent wrath. And it's an eternal wrath. And only Christ Jesus, the King, can rescue you from the wrath to come. We looked at that this morning. This evening, I want us to focus on... Um, how then we should repent? What true repentance look like? And we can summarize what John is teaching us. This uh, simply this: um, we, re- we true repent. We we welcome Jesus by true repentance. That's essentially what he's doing. But then, but then, what I want us to do is to unpack that. What is this true repentance? And your outline uh, should help you uh, guide you along the way. I want us to do two things. I want us to look at first of all what repentance is not. According to John the Baptist. Okay? What repentance? It's very interesting. John starts from that because we get confused about that. And so John the Baptist himself started by clearing the way. Like, this is not repentance. And then he tells us what repentance is. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. So, first, what repentance is not. As I said, John starts his sermon by rebuking or telling off the crowds who have come to him that they have not genuinely repented before God. Look at verse 7 to 8 there. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, or you children of vipers, who warned you, John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What John the Baptist is saying is simply this. You people are not ready to be baptized. Because you have not truly repented of your sin. Baptism, whether it's John's baptism or Christian baptism, is for the repentant. Right? And he's saying, you are not ready to be baptized by me. You are still under the wrath of God. You know, many people have been baptized without true repentance. And John would say the same thing to them. 
You are not, you are not born again. You are not truly converted. John is saying you are still under God's wrath. Who told you that by simply coming to the Jordan and getting into the water, you will escape the judgment of God? It's like, no, it's not happening. You've not repented. Now, these words of John the Baptist, the crowds, include the religious leaders, isn't it, as well? But they are aimed at the crowds, as I've said. And they are teaching us three important things about what repentance is not. Okay? First, repentance is not merely wanting a better life. It's not looking at the world and saying, oh, these things are really terrible in my life. Now I, 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 now I, need, I want a better life, so I've repented. The mere desire that you want things to be better. That's not Repentance. At the beginning of this chapter, Luke has made, clearly that, has made it clear to us that the people are in a terrible state, isn't it? We've, we've read the list of the names that have been wrote out, right? They're reminding us that Israel is under Roman occupation. It has become a nation of Belmash, we might say. The Jews are second-class citizens in their own land. And they are longing for change. And I think it's reasonable to assume that one reason... They are flocking to see John. Is that messianic fever? Messianic sort of longing at at fever pitch. They are longing for change. The people of Israel are looking at the state of the nation. They are looking at their own lives, Uh, and they see that something has gone wrong in the land. And they are and they realize by reading the Old Testament scriptures that the reason they are in this situation is because they have turned their backs on God. Because God specifies that in the Old Testament. And so they are longing for God to come and fix things. And, and when we looked at Anna and Simeon, we said that Anna spoke to people who were waiting for the consolation, for the redemption of Israel. So in the nation, there are people longing for God. And I'm sure the crowd has caught some of that. And so they desire for things to be better. And so what do they do? Well, they've caught it up on Twitter and, or X or, and they've read about it. And off they go to the Jordan. When I was young, we used to go to those wonderful crusades, isn't it? Up in, in Zambia, and you hear it's happening. Oh, of course, you just go there. You don't know who's speaking, but everybody's doing it. And you are there, because why? Because you, know, you want your life to be better. But John sees them coming, and then he says to them, what does he say to them? He said, therefore, to the crowds, verse 7, that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Ouch. Who warned you to flee? From the wrath to come. John is saying, look, I'm not looking for a crowd. I'm not trying to build numbers. You are not ready. You are not ready to welcome the king. Your desire to be baptized is superficial. Yes, you can see that God is not happy with Israel. Yes, you want things to be better in the land than your life. Yes, you want to escape the wrath to come. I see that. You want to have a better future for yourself. But that is not repentance. The mere desire is not repentance. Regret of your situation is not repentance. A desire for God to bless you in some way is not repentance. And friends, whatever our situation this evening, we need to get this right. We need to understand this in our own lives. Because many people who are in churches today are like this crowd. They are looking at their life. And they rightly feel the need for a better life. There's nothing wrong with that. Or they want God to give them a job. They want God to give him friends. And they may even want to escape from hell. Now, there's nothing wrong with having those desires. But it is not repentance. It is not repentance because if there is a way in which God can still give them those things. He can still give them a better life. A better car, better friends, better marriage, right? A better church. But they are without God. They will still pick, they will pick those things. Because they have no love for God. It's not God they are after. If they can go to... If, for them, if they can be in heaven without Jesus, it's heaven. But for the Christian, a heaven, no matter how wonderful it is, it's not heaven without Jesus. It is about him, as we've been taught in Philippians. Like Paul himself says, I want to know him. <laughs> Repentance seeks after him. No male improvement of your life. 
And so John sees through that. He says, no, you want a better life. And your mere desire of your better life is not repentance. Judas wanted to, to have a better life after betraying the Lord Jesus. But it didn't repent. It didn't repent. It regretted his decision. But it didn't repent. So repentance is not merely wanting a better life. Secondly, repentance is not merely knowledge of our sinful condition. It is not merely saying, I accept I am a sinner who has offended God. I see that. That's, 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 that's good, but it's not repentance. The crowd accepts that they are sinners. How do we know that? Because that is what John has been preaching. <laughs> right? He's preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. He's preaching that they repent and be baptized. They get that. And I think there are people in this crowd that have heard John clearly. They know John says you are sinners. And they, they accept that. They know John says you must repent to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. And they have come perhaps for that. Their decision to get in the water testifies that they have some knowledge that they are sinners, Right? They have a John sermons about sin. They probably have a YouTube channel for John. And they are piling it in. And they may even be very knowledgeable in theological things. They could give a lecture about the doctrine of sin. And let's not forget the effort they have made. These people have come a long distance to be baptized. And I would then reverse my illustration. It's not like they are watching John on YouTube. Right? They have trekked through the wilderness to get to John. What makes John's ministry remarkable is that John isn't going to the people. John is a wilderness man and people are coming to him. John doesn't have a website, www.johnthebaptistministries.com. No, as we'll see next week, John's motto is that I must decrease and he must increase. So John is not doing anything to attract the people. The people have heard his message and they are responding. And I think part of that is because they have this knowledge of sin. And so when we look at the people in the crowd, we look out on the surface, it's impressive, isn't it? They clearly know they are sinners. They have come to be forgiven of their sin. But John looks at them and says, no, you are not repentant. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. <coughs> Friends, knowing that we are sinners is not true repentance. Every person at the core knows they have offended God because their conscience bears them witness, but they are not repentant. This knowledge that we are sinners is not repentance. Even confessing we are sinners to someone else is not repentance. Even with tears, I have seen people shed tears only to discover later that there was no change. No chance. They had the knowledge of sin, but they were not truly repentant. So repentance is not merely wanting a better life. Repentance is not merely knowledge of our sinful condition. And repentance, friends, is not doing things to make God like us. It's not bribing God. Trying to bribe God. Of course, we can't bribe him. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, not that, they came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who want you to flee from the wrath to come. The crowds in verse 7 believe that by going through baptism, God will welcome them. That's the logic. If they do this, God is on their side, right? But John is saying that baptism is not repentance, Right? It is something they are meant to do in this context after they have truly repented of their sin. As I said, it's the same thing for us. Baptism or any other religious activity we do does not serve us. Simply getting into the water cannot save anyone. So verse 7 is underlying to us that true repentance is not about rituals or religious observance or the things we do for God. Oh friends, no matter... Listen... If John, if the Bible can say this about baptism, and baptism and communion are the two big ordinances of the church, what about anything else? What about anything else? If it can say this, that you being baptized does not save you, 
What does that say about any, and these are ordained by God, what does, why would he say about anything else? Of course he can't save us. No matter how important the ritual is, and as I said, baptism is at the top, it's not repentance. Three things for God to like us. No matter how important those things are, it's not repentance. So, repentance is not a desire for a better life. It is not simply accepting that we are sinners, and it is not doing things to make God like us. What then is, is repentance? What is it? What is the repentance King Jesus wants from us? Well, that's the second truth we learn here, isn't it? I want us to look at what repentance is, and it's in your outline there. And I've said repentance is simply this. It's a changed heart that leads to a changed life. It's a change of heart that results in a change of life. Let us look at those two things. First, notice repentance is a changed heart. Look at verse 7 again there. John is saying that the people who are coming to be baptized by him have an evil heart or evil nature. In fact, he calls them a brood of vipers. You brood of vipers who want you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The original word for brood there means offspring or children or fruit. Interesting enough. Vipers, of course, uh, uh, is the same as snake or even serpent. So when we step back and look at that text, it's clear what John is saying. You are children of the devil. You are children of the devil. Your nature is evil. You are not ready to be baptized because your true nature or heart is evil and dangerous. For you, therefore, to be truly repentant, your inner nature must be changed. Your heart must be changed. You, you have a heart that bears or produces fruits that are evil, is basically said. That needs to change. You must bear fruits. And by fruits, John means good fruits. How do I know that? Because verse 9 underlines that, doesn't it? Right? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. The, 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 fruit, the fruits of verse 8 is the good fruit of verse 9. And we know that also by just reading on in Luke. Luke 6, verse 43, verse 45, the Lord Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit. No again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The nature of the fruit depends on the tree. The bad trees will be cut down in verse 9 because it can't bear good fruit. And why can't it bear good fruit? Because it's a, it has an evil nature. And so what John is saying here is that true repentance starts in the heart. Starts in the change of a nature. We must have a new nature. When someone has repented, they generally repented, they have a new nature that then bears good fruit as an output. Oh, friends, it's important you understand that the fruit is not something produced by effort. It's a fruit. It's, it's a result of a changed heart. It's like giving birth, isn't it? It's, 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 uh, mothers may disagree on this illustration. May, may tell, correct me later that there isn't enough. You're downplaying the seriousness of giving birth. But hear me out, that's what I mean, right? <laughs> Giving birth is a consequence of pregnancy. That's my point. It's not, if you're not pregnant, you can't give birth. That's the point I'm making. I appreciate the effort involved, and perhaps there's a good sermon illustration uh, working from that analogy. I'll leave it to our beloved elder to expand on it, I'm sure, in the future. The point here is that holiness is not so much a work we know that it's an output of a changed heart. I, I'm not saying there isn't striving and us cooperating, okay? But at the fundamental, it's the work of the Holy Spirit who has changed us. It, it comes from a true repentant heart. It's a change that flows from a changed heart. And it's not artificial. It's not merely painting over the problem. Or take, it is actually taking off the underlying color, isn't it? And then... Having something wonderful over, right? That, 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 that's repentance. It is a change that is skin deep. The, the heart of the person has changed. They are now thinking and feeling differently about their sin. And they are running to Christ, their God, for refuge. In short, repentance is a changed heart that leads to a changed life. 
And of course, this is clear just by isolating that word repentance there in verse 8 and understanding it a bit more, isn't it? Because repent, the original word there is metanoia, isn't it? It means a change of mind or heart that results in a change of life. When we have truly repented, we stop going in one direction and going the other way. You, you heard Pastor Barry's wonderful expression when he preached here from Isaiah. He was saying, you, you, you're going this way, you're on the train, and you come off the train, and you, you find that you're going the wrong direction, you come off that train, and you get on the other side of the platform, and you head in the opposite direction. That's repentance. It's a 180. And John gets across this changed life that comes from a changed heart in verse 10. To verse 14, as he responds to the questions of the crowds and the tax collectors and, uh, and the soldiers. Notice there that in verse 10 and 12 and 14, John is asked the question, what shall we do? Look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and asked him, teacher, what shall we do? Soldiers, verse 14, also asked him, are we and we, what shall we do, right? The three groups want to know what it means to truly repent. And, and so they are asking this question. And I think they are asking it because they have been cut to their heart, right? They, are not, this, this, they don't quite fit the brood of vipers. These are people now who, whose change is being, they are going through this change that the Holy Spirit is initiating in their heart. They are desiring to live differently. But John is making clear they haven't yet truly repented. John's answer isn't like, you're all right. Thank you for asking. No, John's answer is that their repentance must be more than a desire. Some people tell me, no, I'm trying to get over this sin. No, you haven't repented of that sin yet. I'm struggling with this issue. No, you haven't yet repented. If it is real repentance, it must lead to living differently before God and man. And so John the Baptist in verse 10 to 14 gives us four marks. I just want to give you this evening. Four marks of a truly repentant life. When you as a believer, have, when you as a person can say, I have truly repented, I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how your life is meant to look like. Okay? These marks. If, 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 if you are wondering, how can I grow in repentance? These are the marks. These are the fruits we are meant to see in our lives. These are important for us to understand what true repentance is, but they are also important from the perspective of assurance. Okay? Now remember, these are fruits. Why is that important? Well, because not all fruits are the same size. Right? <laughs> not all the fruits are the same size. Right? Some big fruits, some small fruits. And the thing you should know about fruits is that they, are, they grow over time. So what we are looking for is not... Everyone looking the same in these fruits, but we're looking for growth towards. We're looking for evidence of fruits becoming large and large in our lives. Four marks. First, a changed life is growing in loving people around you. Those who have truly repented, who have found refuge from the wrath of God, are people who are growing in loving others. We could bring other scriptures, but we'll stick here. Because what John is showing us is that this love is emphasizing the love around you. In your ordinary life, it's growing in loving them, not in the abstract, but in a tangible way. Look at verse 10 to 11. His answer to the crowds. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. What's a tunic? A tunic is a long garment. It's a footnote. I help you there. A tunic is a long garment under the cloak, isn't it? It's next to the skin. What I really, as I was thinking about this, this, this verse, it's important that you understand you don't miss the point here. Because it's easy to miss just reading that. The point of the tunic and why John has used it is that it's a deeply personal cloth. It, it, you wear it underneath. It's personal to you. It's, it's shocking that he wants people to share that. But we'll come to that in a moment. It's a vest. We might say it's like a vest today. I was trying to think of illustri- things that would be equivalent today. It would be like a vest. Uh, or maybe a t-shirt, if you like wearing a t-shirt underneath. It, it's something we don't share. <laughs> That's the point I'm trying to get at. It's something we really don't share. 
And that is the point John is making. He's saying, share that. It's so important that you understand John doesn't say, give that. It's not give, it's share. And the original Greek confirms that it is share. The ESV is right. And what he's saying is, essentially it's obvious what John is saying. If you have truly repented, your life has been changed. You live in such a way that you share with others what's close to you. You are personal, you are direct in sharing. A changed person is growing in giving themselves and their possessions to people around them in a tangible way. It is loving them with their lives. That's what John is getting at. Even the food is sharing, not giving. In other words, you're bringing them into your life. You're sitting down with them and you are in theirs. The point is that the transformed person, the person who has truly repented, they're not tight-fisted. They're not like this to themselves. They, they, They give all their heart now for the kingdom. And that shows in how they live towards others. George is saying your attitude to God is revealed by your attitude to people around you. If you are growing in loving God, you grow to love people. The people around you, in your life, in this church, beyond where you work. And the first question, therefore, for all of us as we think about this somber subject of true repentance is this. Are you growing... In loving the people around you. You've said you've escaped from the wrath of God. Does your attitude to other people show you are actually living a changed life? Because of a changed heart. It's a serious question. A changed life is growing in loving people. The second mark is obvious, isn't it? A changed life is also growing in honest living. It does not cut corners for self-enrichment. It has a soft conscience for honesty. Look at verse 12 to verse 13, what John tells the tax collectors. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. You know, the tax collectors work for the Romans, isn't it? Who have colonized Israel. We'll meet them later so we don't need to say too much. The point is, they are the HMRC of Judea or wherever they are based, or Galilee. And the Romans have set a level to collect, right? That they are meant to collect, right? And actually, the Romans have also specified what a fair wage for them should be. The problem is that these tax collectors are living... Their work culture is not like that. It's become corrupt. We know this from Zacchaeus, of course, right? It is normal for them. It's accepted in their profession to collect more than they need. And they keep the excess. Even though the Romans are clear about what's needed, the culture in which they work in, many of us can sympathize with that, isn't it? We all know about being in a job where the rules are like this, but the way people behave... What's accepted is completely different, right? And when you deviate from that, people are looking at you. What's wrong with you? Like, yeah, we know the rules, but you know how it's done here, right? Well, it's like that with the tax collectors. De jour, right? De jour is like there, like how the rules have been specified. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's clear cut. De facto, you know, the way they behave culturally is different, right? And this is the issue, Right? Now, in this passage, some tax collectors have been convicted in their hearts about this. And they want to repent how they are living. And so John says to them, if you have truly repented, start living honestly. Honest before God and honest before the world. The evidence that you have repented is not to quit your job. Not that. It doesn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. In fact, it doesn't tell the soldiers to stop. It's not the profession as such. It's, it's, it's how you behave in that profession. And so he says, yeah, you can stay in your job, but, inst- but when, if, as long as you are there, do it in an honest way. In a way that honors God. Make an honest living. And this is a fundamental principle. The Christian's disposition changes in how they relate to people. Love enters through the door when we've truly repented. And the second thing that enters, according to John, is honesty. Truth. The tongue of deceit has been replaced with truth now. We have a heart that seeks to do, to live honestly in every area and says honest things. 
we show we are truly repentant by making an honest living, a transparent living. And so, friend, you have to ask yourself this evening, are you the sort of person who is always looking to cut corners at work? Are you always a person who's stealing time from the employer? Are you a person who isn't dealing well with tax issues with the government? Are you honest about that? Are you making an honest living? This is a serious thing, friend. You know, if you drive, <laughs> if you drive, I was thinking about this this, this past week, If you, because I was on a motorway, um, I was driving the dual carriage somewhere, perhaps a motorway, I think I went to see Kevin, but you've had your fair share, if you're on the motorway, I was thinking about this, you've had the fair share of speed cameras. <laughs> I mean, they're all over the place when you're driving, right? And what we often do is, when we see a speed camera, what do we do? Once the camera is on us, whether we've got an app or anything else like that, right? Once the camera is on us, we slow down, don't we? And what happens? Well, you, we all watch the cars, don't we? Immediately, we are past the, 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 the speed. Speed picks up, right? If, if the speed limit on that road is still 30, we are on 40. Because there's no camera around, right? Right? Now, of course, what we're doing is breaking the law of the government. Right? I'm not an expert. Speak to the brother there about these things. I'm sure he keeps the law. But the, the point is, I'm sure it's breaking the law of the government. Right? And I would say it's actually a sin before God. To go beyond the limits set by the government. It is. But that's not my point. My point is that what we do with speed cameras is reflective of how we live. Generally. We live differently when people are watching us. We, we, we just try, we, we try to do what is sufficient for the society we are in, right? We can be honest with our employer when we are being monitored. We tell the truth only when we must. That's how we live. And the point John is making is that that's not a sign of a repentant heart. A changed life as a repentant heart that is growing in honest living before God and the world. Whether you are being watched or you are not being watched. Whether people know you are, you're, what you're doing or they don't know. The tax collectors could have gotten away with it. No one probably was seeing precisely what they were doing. But God saw. And that's the point. And so here we see that repentance is not only growing in loving people. It's not only a changed life. It's not only a growing in loving people. A changed life is not only growing in loving people. It's a growing in living honestly. And here's the third thing. A changed life is also growing in treating others with dignity. Look there at the soldiers in verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. We haven't got time to unpack those three things. Right? Before we look at briefly what he's saying, uh, we should just be aware that we don't know whether these are Roman soldiers or Jewish soldiers, right? There could be Jewish soldiers at the, who, are, who work at the temple, or there could be Roman soldiers. We know we meet centurions and so forth. So we don't need, that doesn't matter, right? What matters is that they have heard John preaching, they have been cut to the heart, they're asking John, how should we leave these soldiers? They want to truly live repentantly. And what does John say to them? He's saying to them, if you have truly repented, you must now live a changed life as soldiers. Start by treating the people you come across with dignity. That's the way I could summarize those three things. He's saying, treat other people with dignity. Don't mistreat people in your life. Yes, I know this is difficult for you as soldiers, because mistreating and extorting people is a culture you swim in. That's what being a, soldier, a Roman soldier looks like. But John says, no, 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 we're not working under those conditions. Don't go with the culture. If you're saying you have truly repented, you must now live a changed life. Don't extort. Be fair to everyone. Don't threaten anyone. Don't be a bully to anyone. Don't harass people. Don't even try to get even with them. Be a good neighbor to them. That's really what he's getting at throughout this. Be a good neighbor to them. You need to treat whoever is standing in front of you with dignity. That rude customer needs to be treated with dignity. That difficult church member needs to be treated with dignity. 
That's what John would say if he was here. That tough boss needs to be treated with dignity. We show we are truly repented by growing in treating other people with dignity. Are you, dear friend, growing in living a life that dignifies other people? Because if you have truly repented, you've set your face to heaven now, and God has given you a new heart, you should be growing, living a repentant life. And a repentant life is a life that grows in treating others with dignity. Are you doing that? Do you see evidence of that? Or are you a person who looks down on others? Are you a person who is forever threatening your children? Threatening your spouse? Threatening your employer? Threatening other believers? Threatening the world? You know, I was very convicted when I reflected on this. I asked myself, how do I treat the people that are not meant to pack there? Do I speak to them loving? That came home. Like, I've got to apply this stuff myself first. I'm like, how do I treat them? Do I sort of like, oh, we're going to clamp your car? I mean, that's threats, right? That's right. If I want to come, then I just need to speak to the brother to do all the kind of illegal stuff for us. And then they get done. Threats, that's not biblical. So I do a lot of repenting on that. I'm just saying. We need to ask us, where in our lives are we threatening? You see, when we were in the world, we were prone to issue threats to people. To force them to do what we want. A true repentant person does not live like that. Finally, a changed life is also growing not only in treating others with dignity, it is growing in contentment. Look at verse 14 there. Again, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Man, I was like, John, why bring contentment in? I mean, come on, right? Right? John the Baptist is saying something we don't expect. Contentment as evidence of repentance? Really? I was shocked when I read that, right? I've read it many times, but I missed it. It seems to me, when I first read it, like a very high bar of true repentance. We're thinking to ourselves, why is John making this a salvation issue? Contentment. It's a sanctification issue. Well, why should it be like kind of just... This, this is evidence that I'm truly converted? Well, the second part of verse 14 explains the first part, doesn't it? Because the, the, the soldiers must not beat people or extort money from them because why? Their heart disposition has changed. Contentment is getting at the heart. And I'm sure Brother Fred, as he takes us through Philippians chapter 4, he will expand on that, right? A sign that we have truly repented is that we are growing in finding satisfaction in what King Jesus has given us. And we are contented with that. We are growing in being contented in him. We live under the reign of King Jesus now. He has come and we are under him. And therefore, we, how can, when you think about it, how can we not be contented if we believe Jesus is who he says he is? How can we not? The Jesus of the Bible. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He has delivered us from darkness and transferred into the domain, into, into his domain. How can we not be contented? A sign that we have truly repented is that we are contented in him. A repentant heart grows in contentment because he has renounced any rights over the things of the world. We have put everything at the disposal of Jesus. And we know Christ now is our king and that he belongs to us and he is a good king. He cares for all our needs. So there we have it. Two truths we have learned about repentance. What repentance is not. Repentance is not merely wanting a better life. It's not merely knowledge of our sinful condition. It's not merely doing things to make God like us. What then is repentance? Well, repentance is a changed heart. That leads to a changed life. What does a changed heart look like? Well, we've looked at four things, isn't it? A changed life is growing in loving people around us. A changed life is growing in honest living. A changed life is growing in treating others with dignity. And a changed life is growing in contentment. In effect, what John the Baptist is teaching us is this. Is that true repentance restores us in the right relationship with God. 
We now live for King Jesus and not for ourselves. If you have been truly born again, if you have set your face to heaven and you've turned your back, this is your life now, growing in loving people, growing in honest living, growing in treating people with dignity, and growing in contentment. All true repentance, friend, brings us into a harmonious relationship with God. Without true repentance, we cannot live with King Jesus in our lives. That's the point. I just want to be clear before I wrap all of this thing up. Is this, we must remember, even as we've been talking about repentance, repentance, no matter how wonderful, cannot wash away your sins. It cannot wash away your sins. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. As Jesse Rouse says, our best repentance is a poor, imperfect thing that needs repenting over again. What he's saying is that we should repent over our repentance. Because no matter how much we repent, it's imperfect. Our most genuine repentance has so many holes to sink us into hell. We must never rely on our repentance. We must rely on Christ. You and I can never repent enough to get ourselves into heaven. God only accepts our repentance because King Jesus has died for us. And yet it is true that without repentance, without true repentance, there is no life with King Jesus. That's the point. There will be no one in heaven who has not genuinely repented. Hear me clearly, beloved. There's going to be no one in heaven who doesn't show the marks. That we've been talking about this evening. So the first question you must ask yourself this evening. Is are you truly repentant? Can you look at those marks. Those fruits of a changed life. And say yes. I'm struggling there. I'm struggling. I'm not what I should be in those areas. But I can see. I'm growing in loving people. I'm growing in honest living. It's hard. But I'm, I, I even feel guilty when I'm not honest. Can you say I'm growing in treating other people, difficult people, with dignity? Can you say I'm growing in being contented in Christ? And I want to grow more in these things. Well, beloved, be assured then that God has saved you. And that is a work in your life. That he has removed that unrepented heart of stone. If the answer is yes... And he, has, and he has given you a new heart that beats with the pulse of the Spirit. And, and be assured then that you have a hatred for sin. That's wonderful. Be assured that you have new affections for, king, for the king that enables you to be at war with sin. If we are looking at another passage of Scripture, we simply say this, how do we know we have repented? Am I at war against sin or am I complicit in it? If you are war against sin, beloved, then sin is not who you are. You are now standing in the righteousness of Jesus. And be thankful to God for that. But if you haven't got those evidences, then, well, friend, you must come to God now. You must lay yourself before him. As we said this morning, the cost of lacking repentance is too great. It's allowing yourself to suffer the wrath of God in hell forever. It's a life robbed of the goodness of God. So, if you haven't truly repented, do not delay. Oh, friend, do not delude yourself. There is no other way to be with Jesus except heartfelt, true repentance that the Holy Spirit has generated in your heart. And if the Holy Spirit perhaps is warming your heart now, come to Jesus today. Forget about how much mileage you've clocked in church. Make sure you're truly converted. Make sure that you have cried out to God and he has given you a new repentant heart. What about those of us who are already truly trusting in Jesus? Those who can look at those four marks and say, yeah, I'm growing in a changed life. How should we respond to this? Well, Around of time, all I will say is this. Gratitude. I think we can summarize it with gratitude. We always do that. That's an easy way to summarize by gratitude, isn't it? If you can look at these things we've talked about and see evidences of God at work, be thankful. Why? Because that is not your work. 
That is Christ who has worked in your life. Thank him for that. How do we thank Jesus? Well, give Jesus a hug, I would say, isn't it? Hold him tight, friend. Hold him tight. He's your redeemer. He's your king of kings. Hold Jesus tight. I would even say give Jesus a hug every day. I don't mean go there and start standing doing invisible stuff. That's heresy. I'm saying enjoy being with Jesus. Spend time with him. Ask him to fill you with his love and, and, you, and for your love for him to grow. Meditate on this wonderful Savior who delivers us from the wrath to come. Rejoice in him, as Paul says. And again I say, rejoice, rejoice in being a child of God. And continue to grow. And as you continue to do that, actually, you continue to produce the fruits of true repentance that we've been looking at. And so this evening, as you thank Jesus, resolve also to grow in the fruits of true repentance that we've talked about. Take away this ship with you. Pray through it. Ask the Lord to deepen uh, your, 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 your growth in these areas. Ask somebody else to, uh, if you're married, it's a wonderful thing. Ask, ask your spouse, to look, how do you see me doing in these four areas? Where do I, where am I in danger of the wrath to come? And then pray through that, isn't it? The Lord has given, it's a wonderful thing to be married. God has given us uh, as a gift to each other. And this is one area where we can really grow. Our spouses can say, you are not contented enough. No one else can see that. (laughs) It's a wonderful thing. So, if you're married, do that. If you're not married, the brothers and sisters are here to get alongside us and speak the same word of God uh, into our lives and help us to labor side by side for the sake of the gospel. Well, may God save anyone here who has not truly repented of their sin and may he help his true children here to grow in true repentance. Amen.